0: What's happening everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Carbide Podcast and our first in a series called Behind the Brand. One thing that's really unique about our industry is that most people who work in it are enthusiasts themselves. They work all week on snowmobile related projects and spend the weekends out riding trails, in the mountains, or even racing. This is a common theme if you dive into the history behind many of our favorite brands too. They all start with someone who loves sleds and want to turn it into a career somehow. Over 20 years ago, the Erlinson family of Baxter, Minnesota did exactly that, turned their passion for drag racing snowmobiles into one of the premier clutching and performance companies in the power sports world, all while retaining a family atmosphere of just wanting to help their fellow riders enjoy the sport as much as they do. So without further ado, let's go behind the brand of EPI. And welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in once again. On the line tonight, former drag racer, former dirt track racer. His colleagues may call him a jack of all trades. However, his actual title is head of product development at Erlinson Performance Incorporated, better known as EPI of Baxter, Minnesota. This is Chad Erlinson. How are we doing, Chad? Pretty good about yourself. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm uh, looking forward to diving into, you know, both your own career history, but also the history of EPI. It's going to be a good time. That should be fun. <laughs> so for you, Chad, you know, it runs deep in the family for sure. But what was your first power sports toy? What was the one that really got you kind of hooked on this world?
1: Uh, the first toy I ever had. Um, well, I, there, there's two of them in the snow world. It was a little kitty cat. Um, got my first trophy when I was four years old at a radar run. And I think I probably ran like five miles per hour down the whole strip, but you know, I got a little trophy, and, and it was four years old, and that was my first one there. And I I rode that thing as much as you could, in um, and things. And then on this on the summer side of things, I had a little seventy Honda four wheeler that I absolutely wore out.
0: <laughs> oh man, that's that's awesome! I, I love to hear the stories of where it starts for people because it's it's always humble beginnings, and it's always cool to look back on. Yeah. Um, so i mean big part of your life has been you know kind of tinkering and and fixing and improving products were you did you kind of have that mindset early on as a kid just being curious how things worked or was it just something you enjoyed riding at the time
1: uh a little bit of both um i, I kind of i grew up in two different worlds kind of um on my dad's side it was you know he had the nicer newer stuff my my parents were divorced when i was pretty young um so we'd go to his house and he had the nicer newer stuff that you you, you know you're afraid to break but you go mm-hmm. out and rode hard and, and played with and stuff like that and and tinkered a little bit um you know as i got older it got to be a lot more on my mom's side um we had me and my cousins lived around the road and they always had old screws snowmobiles little bubble hoods and stuff like that where it'd suck your coat into the you know the mm-hmm. car Yep. And, and all that um and, and so from that side of it we, we rode we took whatever we could find and tried to make it run and and literally went out and beat the 11 crap out of it until it broke again and started the process over again um and so uh, you know probably on my mom's side got us tinkering more on the older crappier stuff um but definitely on the tuning side and all that came on my dad's side
0: okay okay so it sounds like growing up your dad was already heavily into it pretty much once you were once you were born. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have pictures of me um at the you know, he used to be an over racer back when I was first born and stuff like that. And there's pictures of me all bundled up sitting on the race sleds in the pits and, and things like that. We're, we're watching them race and, and do things like that. So Oh, that's awesome.
0: That's awesome. So, you know, your dad was definitely super into it, but was it just a hobby for him or did he always kinda wanna turn it into a business in some aspect in the long term?
1: Um it, it, it was always a hobby, but he always wanted it to be more um, yeah. and, and finally got the opportunity when EPI came along, um, like where that's all kind of started, where he he was working at Parts Unlimited at the time and, um, you know, we were jumping forward, you know, a few years, but we are he was at Parts Unlimited, he was national sales manager for that, but then we were grass dragging sleds and, and he had done it before I got involved as much as I was, but I was helping him build stuff and work on things and, and they were doing that quite a bit. Well, it got to be where at that competition level, you had to put a lot of time, money and effort into it. Mm-hmm. And where that led to is there wasn't a whole lot of stuff out there for it. So he mm-hmm. went out and started building things for for his own sleds to go fast. Well, once he started going faster, everybody else wanted to know how he was doing it and doing that. And that kind of was, oh, I built this spring or I did this weight. And and he started selling those off and, and it it kept growing and growing. And finally got to the point where you know it's like you know hey we're doing all these snowmobile parts but i got my main job and he goes i can't do them both and i need to kind of make a jump one way or another it's like either i got to give up doing all this race time on race stuff or i got to make it work and and quit my good job and make make this dream happen and so thankfully he, he took that leap and made the dream happen and took it from
0: there that's awesome that's awesome so I'm curious then for you, Chad, because you've kind of had your own racing career outside of just, you know, working with EPI. But when did your own racing career start? Like when did you first kind of dabble in it?
1: Um, it? I started out as a kid um, racing BMX and went through those rinks. And and you start out with just pedaling my butt off and then went to where doing really good local level and then went traveling and did a lot of state races and state championships and things like that um and then it went from um on my mom's side we were doing all the rednecks games you could think of you know whether it was demolition derby (laughs) figure eight cars uh enduro cars um they luckily had three older cousins or three cousins that were all about same age um and i just kind of teamed up with those and whatever whatever we could do to make that had an engine that made noise we went and did it um and and stuff and that kind of got me in the a lot of the tinkering stuff and, and the grassroots, good old good old boy, fun stuff um, mm-hmm. there. Um, and then as I was kind of doing that, um, uh, you know, dad got more more into the grass drags or got me more into the grass drag racing. I think I was 13, 14 when I first started running some of the, some of his sleds at first. He kind of started, ran, he'd build an extra sled or let me run it in some of the classes. And then I, next year I'd do my own classes and next year I had my own sleds and things like that. Um, and I was 13, 14, 15 in that range. And then it started getting more and more serious from there.
0: What were your, uh, do you have any major accomplishments in your, in your grass drag career that we could, that we could call out? Uh, yeah, I had a,
1: I had a lot of wins out there throughout the, you know, we ran the, the, what was a pretty big well-known circuit back then. Um, it was SWDRA and then turned in NSRA, um, but I, I won multiple championships, you know, class championships throughout the year. Uh, but the the probably two biggest claims were, you know, we won two Hay Day's championships um, at the big race there. And then also the Wisconsin Cup, um,
0: which was pretty big. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, you kind of touched on it a little bit before, but, you know, the, the correlation between just R&D on the racing side, just trying to make your own sleds faster, naturally leading to people noticing and people wondering what you're running so it sounds like the racing career was basically a direct trajectory into what epi was going to become overall
1: correct yeah it, it we 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 spent more time and money and effort drag racing than most other people ever could um but it was it was helping drive the business and that's what allowed us to take that time money and effort to to go out and do it and stuff and um, I mean, we would spend hours and hours and hours each week going out and testing and in and, and tuning and, and things like that. And um, in drag racing, you spend more time if you're if you're out there tuning, you spend more time going backwards than you do forwards. But that's what you have <laughs> to do to find that little, that extra, you know, two tenths or or whatever it is and things. And, mm-hmm. and the grass dragon, you know, that, that ends up being a, a tuner's game. I mean, it's all won mm-hmm. and lost before you get to the track for the, for the most part. Um, so you have to be dialed in and ready to go on and uh, me and my dad were just just dug into that so hard and sometimes that was good and sometimes that was bad because we sometimes we had different ideas how to do things but mm-hmm. um, and we would be out there arguing about it oh, you know somebody drive by the field and they'd stop in and we were mad at each other because I wanted to do this and he wanted to do that but <laughs> usually we kind of worked out a way where we, we tried both or it made us both faster and, and things and and but that's what really push the business and and push us to find the new parts and and find out how to make it you know faster lighter quicker that type of thing
0: yeah and you had mentioned it just kind of it being a a tuner's game and it's like i've never done grass drags so i'm not going to pretend it's easy of course but it is one of those areas where it a lot of it comes down to how well you have your sled dialed like you need to have the talent you need to have the reflex and the things like that but a lot of it is how well is your sled performing like where are you at with it so i'm sure it must have been really cool like just waxing some of these other guys on equipment and and clutching that you've done yourself that must have been pretty cool
1: yeah and and back then the the grass drags were were a lot bigger i mean now you Mm -hmm. go to heydays and stuff and the grass drags is there but it's not not nearly showing and it's all modified stuff back in the day when we were doing it it was the 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 majority of the things were the stock classes or maybe an improved stock class where they put a set of pipes on it and things like that. Mm-hmm. But you'd have four four rows deep standing at the fence watching it and you'd have anywhere from twenty to forty to fifty class, you know, people in each class sometimes. Um and you'd just window your way down to the top four and kinda of go from there. But it it was it was crazy the time and, and effort that you know not only us but a lot of other factories and teams and, and put into it and and where it helped us as a business also is we were able to get the, the sleds early. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we got that season's winter sleds, you know, in June or July. And by mm-hmm. the end of the, our grass drag season, we've been racing them and had them part 800 different ways um, and tested and tuned for three months on them uh, before most people even seen their sleds in the, in the winter. And we already, you know, they're kind of old news to us by then, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it it found out, you know, we would spend time dining on. So we found out where the motors ran for peak horsepower, torque, and all that, and tuned for it, and and that just sped up our whole winter program that much more, and helped our trail kits and our pro kits and and things like that for all the winter type stuff.
0: Yeah, I I was gonna ask about that because I'm kind of curious, a little bit off script, but you know, you have your own race sleds that you're actually racing, you're tuning, but then you obviously have all the other manufacturers and all the other models that could still utilize a clutch kit, so how did you kind of approach that during the race season like i want to i want to tune my own sled but i also have this business on the side that i'm have to develop for and actually pay the bills with
1: yep and, and, and that was the hard part and, and um when we got that when we were at the top level uh, on the pro level um it, it always looks glorious on the outside but it, it takes a lot of the fun away because you're so dedicated to it mm. and, and pushing so hard for it and then towards the end um we were working with the players race department and and we would have to take our setups and what we found and pass it on to other fellow drag racers mm-hmm. to help the whole players team out as a team and that was always hard and then the funny thing is you could give some racers your exact setup out of your side and say you know put this set of springs in there put this weights in there the helix, and they said well that's not what it is i, was like, I guarantee you can come to the track today <laughs> and open our hood and that and yep. And some people would put it in it and it worked awesome for them. And the next person, no, it didn't work. And cause they had their suspension suede different or they didn't like how it worked here or there or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's the kind of the magic with the clutching is, you, you know, there's, you know, thousands of different congregations you can go and, you know, you, you could take 10 people and eat them are going to be pretty close and one's going to be a rock star, and one's not going to be good at all, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and just dialing that in and, and things. But, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. it was, it, it was a lot of work and a lot of effort, you know, by, you know, not only me, but my dad and, and stepmom at the time and, and, you know, anybody that put in there, but the, the good thing about that is, you know, we try to make a business that you had to live off of three months of riding. Yep. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So the the good time is we had an extra time in the summer to. To develop stuff and build stuff, and then as soon as we are racing, we we're also trying to okay, we're gonna need this for the winter, and we're trying to decide how to build it and design it and get it done so, away well, winter came, we were ready to
0: go with it. So EPI officially, you know, from the timeline starts or is launched in 1991. What did it kind of look like at this launch? Was it was it a formal company? Was it a full building, or was it still kind of a hobby business at this point in time?
1: It, definitely hobby business. Um, gotcha. it, like I said, uh, my dad, Glenn, he he was working with parts limited time. So that was, he was at the office during the day and then he'd come home at night and in the basement of the house was um, some of the parts and pieces that we were selling. And then we had a three stall garage that we built all the race lids in and ran out of. And, and then we we're gone every weekend for three months racing. Um, so it, for the most part, it ran out of a three, three or two and a half stall garage, pretty much, and then part of the basement. Um, and we'd take orders at night, and and a lot of a lot of the racers were doing the same thing. They work at night, or they worked mm-hmm. in the day, and so they call at night, or they call and leave messages, and you call them back the during the day when you could get a hold of them and kind of go and, you know, at first it was just kind of yeah, dad doing it and building some parts and said, okay, I can build you this and in and, and doing that, and you know, back then the. You know not everybody had cell phones with the internet on them and stuff like that so was, you 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 learned the stuff by reading snow week and yeah and yep. who did that and some of the other magazines that were out there and, and stuff and you know some of the internet and things but definitely wasn't as easy as it is today to get the news and things out there
0: so when you guys first launched even as kind of a hobby business was it mainly just selling to other drag racers or did you try and set up a local kind of dealer network in northern minnesota or kind of what did that look like if you can remember um from from what
1: i remember mostly it was mostly race racers that were trying to set up things Mm -hmm. and and that led to you know if you could get in one of the racers with the group and got them using your stuff then the rest of you guys when your group wanted wanted to try that so if they had an epi helix they wanted you know everybody else in that group was going to try that as long as it worked good and things like that and then and that's where it really expanded because our our stuff you know thankfully back then players in a lot of the you know arctic and skidoo uh we always did clarices our our specialty and what we did the most of but we did do some arctic stuff and and some skidoo never really played the yamas but um the good thing back then the clutching wasn't nearly as good as what it is today yeah um -hmm. and you didn't have the horsepower as what you have today so you had to you could really tune it to make it a lot better from the factory
0: so Sorry, Chad. Some of these questions I'm asking weren't even on the list, but you're just piquing my curiosity. But around this time, again, smaller operation. Are you guys like sourcing your own weights and springs, and maybe even the helix, or are you kind of piecing together different components from different brands? Like, what's the physical product look like for EPI at this time?
1: Um, at that time, we we. I don't know how we got started into it but we started making our own springs um, because the springs that we wanted didn't exist at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean back in the, you know, early mid 90s there there wasn't a whole lot of options. You got the three or four that made it came stocked with the sleds and and maybe a couple here and there that you can maybe get a hold of through, through the race department or something else, but there wasn't the, you know, the OEMs and have 25 different springs and all these different rates to play with. So, um you know, you just, you just, if you wanted something different, you had to build it. Um, and, and Dad yeah, just kind of, I, I remember the first time is we would get a barrel of springs and I'm like, holy cow, that's a lot of money sitting there. And you know, it might have two <laughs> or 300 springs in there um, and stuff. And then, then all of a sudden when well, now we got a whole, now we got 25 of those barrels throughout the, the basement of all these different types of spring rates and some primary, some secondary, and, and we're building Articat ones and and, and mm-hmm. things like that um and, and i still remember the day where like i remember the first time i seen a semi back up um in the driveway <laughs> i'm like holy crap we're we're big time now i mean we, have we made it <laughs> yeah because <laughs> back then i mean we would either you would go to the, even with our race sleds. you'd normally go to the dealership or you drive up to Rosa and pick them up and, and stuff. So mm-hmm. you, you're doing it on two-place trailers and, and stuff just to go, the fancy stuff or the new race leds or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, but that's how it started out. And weights, weights at first we we're using plurus weights, the 10 series profile, um, which was common in most of them. Um, but then we kind of said, okay, we want a little bit more than that. And then we, we kind of worked with local machine shops and because and, neither one of us, machine shop or machinist but we knew that okay we want to do this and i can either weld or grind or do whatever to this and then we'd bring it to we had one or two machine shops that we worked with locally first and said you know can you make me one of these and like we tried that and it took some trial and error to get you know the right hardness of it so it wasn't you know just a junk weight and and all that then then like okay well now we need bushings in these weights well how do we in the heck do we find that and Mm -hmm. so it was uh you know uh, without having keys or links to those big manufacturers it was it was a little pretty tricky finding that stuff and coming up on your own but it was like okay well let's go to our local machine shop guy he must know there's something here or we or he'd lead us down another hole or, or sometimes you know players said you know somehow we found a a, a players a guy that knew somebody that knew somebody else mm-hmm. that we'd get a hold of and stuff and kind of screwed up from there helixes we were we were um the the stock helixes back then were just like straight 34s and straight 36s and there wasn't a whole lot of options um for the most part and, and if there was it was was not the angles we wanted um so we we started um going to build aluminum helixes and trying that and played around with that quite a bit too
0: so you mentioned it kind of early on that a big part of your r d process at least early on was just your own racing like that was that was basically where you were testing and coming up with all your ideas as you guys kind of fully turned it into a business whether it was smaller as it's gotten to today what has at least at this time at the beginning what was what did the r d process look like when you formalized the company were you still able to just base it off of summertime drag racing or did you have to kind of put together a formal schedule and i gotta track down these sleds and that kind of stuff or was it was it still kind of loose?
1: It is pretty loose at the beginning. Most of it was based off of what we found on the, on the, um, in the grass drags. Um, once it got, where once it started growing where people wanted something different that, you know, some of the sleds that we might weren't drag racing because either they weren't competitive or maybe they weren't, you know, so called a race sled or something. Mm-hmm. Or, and also once we got to the other brands, cause you know, we couldn't be a factory players team out there, you know, playing with Yamaha or uh, Articat or Skidoo or something like that. So, um, then it got a little trickier. Um, and, and then what we did is we, for a lot of the Articat and Skidoo, uh, we worked with, we ended up, we used to do a lot of our dino work at an Oakland Ramsey Sports Center, um, John Nordo on that. And we did, we did a lot of dino, spent a lot of time in his dino room while he was an Articat and Skidoo dealer. Um, so Mark Larson used to work there as one of their mechanics. And we just kind of hit it off with him. And he would, he was able to borrow sleds from them. He was always an Articat guy. And uh, on those, whenever he could get a hold of something, he'd run up here. And then most time, most of that stuff was done late fall when the stuff was just freezing up or early winters and stuff when you get on the snow and ice and things. Um, and then he'd bring that up here and we go out and test them. So it kind of depended on his t- schedule for that. Uh, for the cats and skidoo's on the player stuff, we, we kind of ended up doing that all year round as, as soon as we could. Um, thankfully, compared to, what a big change on that stuff is, is once you built the spring all the way up to about from 90, 85 up to the, you know, the, the late nineties until the team clutch, the, the team roller clutches came out you could use the same springs and helixes throughout mm-hmm. and you could use the same weights and primary springs. And now it's a whole nother mess. So
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of my later questions I was definitely going to ask, but I'll kind of bring it up here a little bit as well. I'm just kind of curious. In those early years, was there like a, a first clutch or a first sled that you're like, shit, this is totally different than anything we've done before. Now we gotta go back to the drawing board.
1: Um, not that I remember. I mean the, the you know, on the player side of things it was it was you know, the triples kind of came out and then all of a sudden you put a set of pipes on and you could gain thirty-five horse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the old six eighties and five eighties and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, holy crap, now we got to change some things. But we kind of used the same combinations of what we had, just lighter weights or or different profile um, or different helix angles and things like that. Um, The the biggest change for me personally was trying to learn the skidoo clutches because they were like a Chinese secret compared to what I thought of. You know, (laughs) and cat were kind of the same thing. Um, And then that TRA was like, okay, who put this together and why did they do it like this, (laughs) you know, type thing um and, and so for me personally it, it took me a little bit longer to learn that um and you know uh, players was always our specialty and that helped us do the cats because the primaries were pronounced the same um secondaries changed a little bit throughout the years on the cats but um we kind of slowly dealt into that um fast forward in the atv world
0: yeah then then there were some headaches there <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's i mean this is a this is a snow podcast, but when you're talking about CVTs, it's obviously you have to acknowledge off road, and it's it is kind of funny like that. Just to look back in hindsight, like, hey, there was a point in time when Polaris launched an ATV with a CVT clutch, and people told them they were insane. That that was there was a point in time where that happened.
1: Yep, they thought they were absolutely nuts, <laughs> and now they've all gone to it except for pretty much Honda. <laughs> hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's it's wild. It's wild. So that's, that's
1: one of the trickiest things, you you know, for basically like we, we, we built a set of weights, you know, or what we call our belly busters, which were kind of weight based off the 10 series profile. But I mean, from an 85 slot all the way up to still some of the 2023 and 24 models, you can still use that weight. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and the primary springs are virtually the same on them. Um, the secondaries are way different, but now that they switched the team, the team has been pretty good for the last 10 years or so say, um. Articat and Skidoo there's a few times here and there in between, but for the most part, it's the whole line switched with them. Um, and that's kind of one of the biggest challenges we have now is when you go to the ATV side, almost you look at any player's model and it almost has its own style clutch mm-hmm. uh, and or it has its own style weights that you can't you can't use it. On a sled you take, oh, I need a 1058 or a 1064 or, or a 1070 or something like that, where it's the same profile, just heavier. Um, on the ATV side of things, it's every model's got its own profile weight and style weight and and that's where you want, want to pull your hair out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could, I could imagine. Yeah. We're, we're kind of dipping into some modern stuff. So I guess we're going to kind of follow the timeline a little bit, kind of once EPI becomes basically a full-time business. I mean, these days, I mean, you guys have your, your headquarters in Baxter and then right next door, you have basically a dedicated R and D building full of, full of units that are various stages of torn down you're traveling all over the country testing clutching what's been kind of the the growth within EPI kind of since the beginning like what's what's it looked like and what's been some kind of big milestones for you guys
1: um the, the biggest thing is it was it was sleds i mean we were we lived and died by the sleds and and there were some years that it sucked because there was you know snow or the snow was late or something you know back in the day and it wasn't even today if you didn't have your, your snow stuff by January 1st, you're kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like people weren't buying things after that and, and things. Um, but it, it's really hard to have you know a business that survives off of three months a year mm-hmm. and, and try to make that work and then try to say, okay, well, in the summer, we're gonna spend a whole lot of money in R&D time that we don't have. We have the time, but we might not have the money because you know it was a slow year or something.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: once we kind of got into that, we were like, okay, well, you know, we got to do something to make this a little bit more stable all throughout and, and make it better for us. And, and so we started looking, and at the time we were using, you know, ATVs at the races to pull our sleds back and forth in and out of the pits and things like that. And we're like, well, why don't we play with these. Nobody's really doing that yet, and we were one of the first ones that really started playing hard on the players's. Um, And we started out there, and did we started doing all of it? And a lot of people said, well, I I gotta, you know. A 400 explorer or 500 sportsman that's not a race machine you know but we reason for hauling and pulling and, and kind of like the same thing you did for sleds, but just different thing mm-hmm. so you know i would say late late 90 or mid to late 90s is when we really started playing with that and and that was a big turning point for epi as a whole because um it just helped us all the way around better um some of the sled stuff transferred over and some of it wasn't you know for, for the first Ten years of players they kind of kind of got the clutching is pretty similar and it was easier to do um and, and things and so that's that where where we made a big turning point where epi really started growing i mean we were a huge snowmobile place that did a little bit of atv for those first couple of years um and fast forward to present we're a huge atv utv place that does some snowmobiling. and i, I think the snowmobile market has changed so much it's it's been a little bit harder just to live off the clutching off the snowmobile world um mm-hmm. and things uh, and then in between we started doing okay well we got the players atvs figured, we got the players and arcticat and skidoo sleds figured out and we continued to keep those going all the way through um and then all of us had the players atvs and then we started doing can am and arcticat and same type of thing for those and now we pretty much do it for all the brands and even some of the the uh, the not not the main top brands, but we'll even dive into some of the other side brands and stuff too. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I hope this doesn't come as a shock to any of my listeners, but the ATV and UTV world might be slightly bigger than the snowmobile world. <laughs> maybe just maybe just slightly, right? Just a
1: just a little. <laughs> and and the, the cool thing is, it, it really helped us because most of those snowmobile guys have. If they weren't ATV guys in the, at the beginning, they've they've turned into them as they gotten older and things like mm-hmm. that. And a lot of them say, you know, as age comes a cage and, and mm-hmm. stuff, and that that cycles through quite a bit. So,
0: one hundred percent, one hundred percent. So, just kind of looking at your product line on the snow side, at least as a whole, what's the best selling either clutch kit or clutch component or belt? Like, what's the what's the highest volume item? Do you think you guys have for snow?
1: Um, currently as, as far as product wise, it, it it's, probably our clutch weights. Um, mm-hmm. we've, we've kind of backed down on the Articats and Skidoo sides. Um, for various reasons, some of it is just, they've varied some of their clutches in the last couple of years and we haven't built as much stuff for them. Um, but staying true to the player side of things, um, our player's weights, and we've been working with some guys out west, um, and developing some good things. Cause for, for our side of it, from what we see, the market's changed so much, we're, used to be everybody had a trail sled out here and, and, and you played here maybe mm-hmm. some guys went out west and things like that now it seems like anybody that buys sleds are buying long tracks and mountain sleds yep. and going out west for the most part mm-hmm. um and and it's depending on how and where you go out west it's it's a whole different you know feel and want to what you need or maybe elevation you what you need and things like that um and we've been working really hard the last three or four years on on developments and new weights with some guys out west and, and they've been working really well um we've made some what they call the belly buster pros um and now we're we've tra- transfer that technology into the new p22 clutch that's come out on a lot of the new you know mountain sleds and things like that um because i mean the the rest of the the snowmobile line is kind of slowly you know it hasn't died off but it hasn't grown like
0: the other ones have mm-hmm. for sure for sure yeah it's It's unfortunate, but it is the reality. Um, So,
1: but for that, is I mean, the sleds make a lot more horsepower than the way what they used to. And, mm -hmm. you know, when everything coming out EFI and and running so much better all the time and have so much direct horsepower. um, And the factories, you know, you got to give, even though it hurts us, the factories have done a lot better job clutching them from the factory, too. And Mm -hmm. so, between the the better clutching and the more horsepower, for most time, it's got the, the customers have more than what they need.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. So alongside, you know, the aforementioned weights and helixes and full clutches in some cases, things like that. You guys also have a full line of tools. So clutch pullers, uh, clutch compression tools, things like that. What's the best selling tool you think you have?
1: Um, I would say right now it's our our clutch puller, the like the PCP eight, which fits all the U S twins. Um, it fits them all up till pretty much almost all the from 2000 all the way up to the most of the 24s um, there's a new version of what the p22 clutch um, that that's coming out but those that pcp it also transfers over to a lot of the atv side so we sell a, a ton of those um, if you want to look at one single tool um, but that's one thing is one thing we've always stayed really good with is we we've, we've made all the tools to you know, not only take your clutches off with clutch pullers, but you know, tune your clutches and service them and maintenance them and stuff like that. So have compression tools and all the tools to rebuild the, the clutches and, and, and all that stuff too. So, um, and cover a lot of the brands with that within that too.
0: So this next one's probably gonna break my heart, but I have to ask it anyway. What, <laughs> per, what percentage of your business do you think these days is snow versus off-road stuff?
1: Well, trust me, it breaks my heart too because uh, I'm a diehard uh, snowmobile guy and a players guy um, throughout. Um, but I would say it's probably 10% of our business now.
0: Oh, brutal. Yeah. It, it,
1: it went from being, you know, it was 99% of our business and then it kind of went from, you know, it, it's just slowly throughout. But the last last 15 years, it's really been a transformation over the ATV, TV side. And, and the biggest reason is it's not that we don't like the the snowmobile side of it. It's just, there's so many more ATVs and UTVs mm-hmm. out there and you can ride them year round. And it's, you know, not only US, but internationally, we sell a ton of parts.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And it's, it's funny. One of my old coworkers, he's, he's a, he's a big motorcycle guy, but he used to work at a, at a dealership here in Minneapolis. And he said, you know, when I was younger, it was motorcycle dealers who happened to sell ATVs now it's atv dealers who happen to sell motorcycles it's it's the exact same for any snow guys it's it's the same
1: yeah yeah and that's i mean i still hey I, I it's in my blood and, and wish we could do more and figure out a way to make more of it but that's just the way it is
0: have you thought about uh, manufacturing snow in-house because that might if be do... that might be the
1: key <laughs> if i could do that it'd be it would be good there there was there's been a few years I remember even back in the early days where it's like man, we don't have no snow this year, and we could instantly tell whatever you know we were small enough business there's two three, four of us here, but the phones would ring, and you could tell New York got snow because the next day the phones were coming and they were all the all the orders were going out to New York and stuff mm-hmm. um you could tell that instantly and 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 then then you'd hear throughout your dealerships and, and all that saying "Well, oh, yeah we, we have nothing in michigan but you know out west they got some or out east they got some and back then i mean the diehard people they'd load up and go i mean and and try to do it and it, there are some rough years where it didn't happen <laughs> and mm-hmm. you're just like crap <laughs> yeah
0: i mean we talk about you know different snow different regions things like this i am curious then again totally off script chad but You know, you guys sell obviously a lot here in North America, but you guys also sell into Europe and Scandinavia. Very different riding conditions, different sleds, things like that. I'm just kind of curious if you get different feedback from the guys that are riding in Sweden with your clutch kits versus the guys that are riding in Idaho with your clutch kits. Like, do you have to treat them differently, things like that?
1: Um, Yes and no, the the good thing is most of those guys that ride in elevation that they're they're tuners and that's one thing that throughout the years the the stone has always been a tuner guy versus the tv utv guys mm-hmm. um you can tell any utv guy that also has a stone because he's gonna yeah. know some tuning or or at least has some knowledge of it and things like that where um you know the guys down south don't have that luxury so they're just going until something happens and they want to work mm-hmm. on it and then they learn it and things but um, anybody that's come from the snowmobile world, you know, they're just kind of used to it and it's secondhand nature to a lot of people. Um, and, and what we find is the, the mountain guys are used to doing that because, you know, they might be jumping from area to area that's different elevations and, and different, you know, the hard pack or whatever it is uh, is different. So they're switching or they're switching, you know, you don't switch as much tracks as you used to. You're buying the sled and kind of run it the way it is. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that, but. It is different and, and we have pockets like overseas or, you know, in the, uh, you know, in Europe in different areas where they ride sleds and they tell you, you got a mountain sled. So you automatically go in mountain mode, but it's like, well, we, we have that, but we're at 2,500 feet or 3,000 feet or, or something. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the ones that kind of throw you off, but luckily they've been around it enough. Usually most time they do it and, and, and then we get them dialed in. But Gotcha.
0: So I want to jump into some. I mean, we've touched on a lot of it already, Chad, but I do want to jump into some specific clutching questions for the audience and just kind of pick your brain a little bit. But So, for, for many people, I mean, you just touched on, you know, for sled guys, some of them are really going to know it, some of them don't, but clutching might seem like a super daunting task if you're kind of thinking about how it could affect the performance of your sled. I'm curious in your mind, do you think clutching is something that the average snowmobiler, if he has any mechanical aptitude can at least figure out maybe not master but at least figure out
1: I, I think a lot of people get scared of, of clutching because they think it's like a you know some type of you know weird magic thing that happens and and, and does that and, and and I'm sure it seems a little bit easier to me because I kind of grew up through it and stuff so um, but what I've always told people is if you take it one step at a time and look at one single piece and, and learn that and kind of go from there, um, whether it's working on them, you know, because some some people, you know, are able to work on it and they might be able to change springs and weights and all that, but they don't know what it's doing or tuning wise. They just say, well, you know, this is what it tells me to put in, so I'm putting it in. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are scared. You know, we see that a lot in the ATV world because it's 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 a newer thing to them. Um, mm-hmm. So most you open up the hood and you kind of see the clutches and and you know, there's more maintenance and, and things like that that most people normally do on the sled side of it on the UTV world they don't know that it's it's new to them and they don't they they call you when their belts blown and they're on the trail and they're like how do i do this you know yeah yep. Um, so i think there's a lot where um i think a lot of people can can do it if you just take it at one step at a time and change the bolts and, and you know a lot of it's just on you know with any type of clutching whether it's our brand or somebody else's most stuff these days you're not cutting or grinding the clutches you're just unbolting weights and changing springs um so it's it's a matter of you know, if you can unbolt anything else on your machine, you can do your clutching and, and just take it a, tep- a step at a time. Um, and as far as turning tuning, um, it it's not too hard to learn the basics. And, you know, as long as you know, you're not, you're not gonna go out there the first time and retune it to make it, you know, do wheelies and flyboard backwards the first time you try to tune something, um, you know, as long, as long as you're realistic on it, I think, you, you know, a lot of people can learn it better than what they they get scared of and i think you learn it better than what you you think you could um that's the way i see it anyways maybe see see different on your side but (laughs) and and what i you know like on on for us what's been a big help um and i wish we would have done more of it back in the snow days too um is you know these days everybody's got a phone and everybody's got youtube um we do a lot of videos of, of how to change the clutches and how to work on them and things like that. Um, not so much specifically tuning each model, but at least how to work on it and at least get them going on that. And usually, once they get familiar and, and um, feel good enough that they can change their parts, then then they can start learning about how to tune them more if they want to. And I think you know these days adjustable weights and things like that are a lot more common. Whereas before, the hardcore tuners were the only ones that really played with those, and and now it's mm-hmm. it's more a little more mainstream. So. People learn. People learn.
0: So I may hijack this next one from you because I have my own answer, but it's going to be what's the biggest misconception you think there is when it comes to clutching? And like I said, I'm going to hijack it. For me, I think it's that only like the the guys who are racing can benefit from clutch work. Like to me, that's the biggest misconception.
1: Exactly. Yep. That's we ran into that a lot on on the snowmobiles when we first started doing it because when we first started doing clutch kits, um, their clutch currents clutch kits weren't really a deal unless you were racing, and, and they, even then, what we tried to do is we try to take what we learned in racing and try to make that more mass production for the mass customers and stuff, and that was getting the trail riders going and making them run better and things like that, um, and yeah, you you can you can definitely make it better all the way around and you don't have to be a racer and it's not also going to turn your machine into flipping over backwards and taking off crazy i mean there's setups that will do that and make it jerky and things like that but mm-hmm. some guys will see a race i like well i don't want my my machine to act like that well it's like okay well this is we know that this is a trail setup and things um and, and i would say between that um and, and that transfers over et world snow and and snow world um both ways there. And then the other thing, the, the other one that I had written down, is that most people think that if you have lower engagement, that gives you more power because you're moving sooner. <laughs> yeah. um, and I always, I always use the thing. Okay, think of a any type of manual transmission car, and if you rev it up higher before you give let out the clutch, you're going to have more power when you go. And, mm-hmm. and so once you kind of get them to realize that, then they kind of picture it, and that's probably the the second biggest one we see. Uh, it, you don't have to have a wide open; it's you know slap the clutch out or anything like that, but um, you know, you can definitely make it bigger because there there's a lot of people that say, I want as much performance as I want, but I don't want higher engagement. Well, mm-hmm. we, we're only raising at 300 RPMs, which is nothing on a sled most time, mm-hmm. but it'll make it so much more responsive when you're on an off gas once you get going and things. And um, so a lot of people get scared of that. The engagement thing was a big thing for a while.
0: Oh yeah. Even, even today, like back in when I was racing snow cross and like my, like my cousin or, or one of my friends would, would ride my snow cross sled, you know, they would rip their arms out and like the first 10 feet and they're like, oh man, this is super fast. I'm like, yeah, for like 40 feet. Like if we were, (laughs) if we were in a straight line, you would drop me instantly. Like close. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so next one here for you then, Chad. And i guess this is a gonna be a super generic one so you can kind of go any direction you want with it but if i'm the average trail rider what are some common indicators whether it's just mentally how i feel about the sled or or sounds or performance what are some indicators to where i should be looking at doing a clutching change of some capacity um
1: on the still world that that's changed quite a bit um the the, the biggest thing is i mean if you're if your machine's getting older you know if if yours is a couple years old and then you've left the clutch springs in there the whole entire time and you're starting off doesn't feel as snappy and responsive and maybe the rpms are falling off um then it's usually a a time that you can freshen up your springs and most time with the oem prices of what they want for springs and weights and helixes you can get an aftermarket setup that's going to perform better for you all the way around Mm -hmm. and that that's usually kind of the first indicator is like man this thing used to be so good and now it's now it's kind of doggy or just doesn't seem like it's going or um in things like that um that on the snow world that's kind of what where, where i go now um if you're talking to the guys out west or, or some of the other guys it's like if all of a sudden you do a big motor change or you're you're doing a tune or a, putting on a turbo or a bigger turbo or something like that then obviously that's you, you need to do it anytime you're changing the horsepower um mm-hmm. or where the horsepower is on the motor you gotta with that that goes hand in hand also Mm
0: -hmm. so obviously for you it's kind of a it's a holistic look at the clutching like what result you're trying to get from it but on a more kind of macro level when are we looking at weights versus springs versus helix like what what performance differences are we looking for with those different things and what could we maybe expect if we make changes
1: um, usually, we would normally use the weights to, to fine tune the top RPM. So if you're trying to bolt that up or down, I mean, the hard part is you, you can take any four main parts of the of the clutch, whether it's primary spring weights, secondary spring, and helix. You can fine tune the RPMs with all four of those, but usually what we would use the, the weights for is fine tune your peak RPMs first. Um, use your primary spring mainly to help tune with that, but also lower raise or lower your engagement depending on what you want there. Um, and then we kind of use the secondary spring and the helix as kind of a the backshift and throttle response. How long, how fast it's reacting when you're letting on and off the gas and recovering that way, or if you're having problems slipping the belt or or that type
0: of thing too. Gotcha, gotcha. It all seems so simple when you say it, Chad. It all just makes so <laughs> much sense when you say it. <laughs> well, talk to me long
1: enough, I'll either confuse you or confuse me. One of the two. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, man. So, I mean, we kind of talked about it a little bit. You've been around a really long time in the in the snow space, Chad, pretty much since you were born. But, you know, if we're looking at the entire timeline, you've touched on it a little bit earlier, but what's the biggest change you've seen in kind of the clutching world when it comes to snowmobiles?
1: Um, the biggest thing is the the snowmobile world has gotten, I think, a little bit smaller as a whole mm-hmm. um, compared to where it used to be. But the, the sleds are making a lot more horsepower, they're a lot more responsive, just motor wise. Um, and the factories have gotten a lot better with their clutching. So now, when you're fine tuning, it's, it's more fine tuning because, um, you, you added a turbo or you added, you know, somebody's tune or something like that on there. Um, or all of a sudden, you're going um, from sea level up to elevation and stuff. So, uh, we, we're, we're kind of getting a bigger run in things now because everybody buys. Uh, mountain sleds and goes out west and then they, it sits at home all the time they they go out west maybe one to three times a year and that's their whole riding season mm-hmm. um and then they get bored and they're like i want to take my sled out here but now i got to reset it so you'll get guys that want to reset some of the mountain stuff for for just so they can try, ride it around the trails a little bit better which is sometimes hard to do depending on what they got but, <laughs> mm-hmm. but make it a little bit more trail friendly
0: yeah i never you know i i live uh, just north of minneapolis and every winter it never disappoints there'll be a dude in a like on a summit or on a chaos riding in the ditches never yep. disappoints i don't understand <laughs> it but there's always somebody doing it
1: Yep, yep, yep. So, so, some um, of them are in training because they'll have the backpack with the shovel on and all that getting used to all that which oh is yeah too. you know getting sure. prepared and make sure it works and things that's that's always a good thing but uh, you know if, if you're riding hard like we used to do uh, the mountain sides won't usually hold up around here very well <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so i mean the last couple of days chad's been getting kind of cold around here you know heydays days was a couple weeks ago people are kind of thinking snow are there any either pre-season or even post-season kind of rituals that you recommend whether it's cleaning the sheaves taking your belt off so it doesn't form in one place any anything you can recommend for people getting ready for winter
1: yeah, the biggest thing is um, I would take the belt off. I mean, some people love to do that. Some people hate to do that, but I'd take the belt off and just, you know, as long as it's off the clutch, you can sit on top of the, the clutch cover or hang it from the handlebars or whatever. You just don't want to leave it in the sunlight, whether it's in, you know, so if you leave your sled outside, make sure that's under the cover or something like that. Cause uh, any type of rubber, and I don't care what brand belt it is, you know, that sunlight will break down your belt and, and cause you more issues on the road but um, just go through and clean out your clutches you know you, you know before and after the season clean them out blow them out um inspect them look for any worn out parts or grooves or anything like that um and just kind of do it in and, and if you if you haven't done it before you know for the new riders you get out there and tell them how to show them you know watch a video or do something just so you know how to change the belt that way if it happens at 10.30 at night in the dark on the trail someplace, you know how to do it and, and where your tools are and things like that, or make sure you got the tools with to, to be able to do it. Um, some, some of the sleds getting harder and harder to do that type of stuff with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then, you know, we, we always use a, you know, spray some brake cleaner um, on, a, on a clean rag and wipe it down. You don't want to just hold the whole clutch down, but just wipe that down and make sure it's good for you. Uh, if the belt is, if the clutch are really shiny and, and glossy looking take a scotch pad and start from the outside edge and go towards the center and just kind of keep rotating the clutch and keep going perpendicular to that and and both sheaves on both primary and secondary and then take again take some brake cleaner or or acetone on a on a clean rig wipe it down and you know that that'll prep your clutches for you know the new new belt or new season so
0: awesome awesome last one for you chad any cool new products or cool new things you got uh, coming down the pipeline that you can, that you can share.
1: Um, in the snowboard world, it, we're, we're, we're coming out with uh, a lot of new weights for the, like the, the P 22 style clutches. Um, and for out west guys riding or, or out high elevation riding. Um, and, and we're coming out with those, uh, we worked on them late this spring out west. And we'll have, have those in, in house here pretty soon within a couple weeks uh, for the winter season. That's, that's our probably biggest, most exciting snow end of it. Um, working on, we always try to keep up with all the tools and, and things like that. Uh, we've gotten a little bit farther behind on the P-Drive tools on mm-hmm. the Skidoo side, because we kind of stayed away from that because at first we didn't have anything for it. Um, but we're, we're diving big into that right now and, and we'll have more for that soon also
0: awesome awesome well thanks again chad i really appreciate it uh you know for all the listeners be sure to check out epiperformance.com head down your local power sports dealer you know these guys are they're based in in baxter so they're they're a local company for us minnesotans so head down your local dealer check them out and as chad mentioned check out epi's youtube channel they have videos going back 10 years on older side-by-sides atvs newer sleds side-by-sides atvs everything you can imagine on how to install these kits so makes it really makes it really approachable and really straightforward and and chad himself will walk you through it on most of these videos so that's the scary
1: part about the whole thing
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely
1: not a Hollywood movie hollywood movie by any means but um you know it'll it'll help you with your clutches it, you know it won't win any oscars or anything but
0: yeah, I mean, you get to listen to Chad install a uh, clutch kit, and cool. I think probably 90% of them, you'll see like a Mountain Dew can in the background <laughs> just sitting there. So it's it's top-level stuff, you guys. Yep.
1: <laughs> Got to um, live off Mountain Dew. Especially these, I'm, as I'm getting older, it's harder to get up and moving, so I need something to get me going.
0: I'm only, I'm only 27, Chad, but I have to do like a Mountain Dew a day these days. It's brutal.
1: Yep. It's way it'll <laughs> catch up to you older, too, or as you get older.
0: Oh, man, man. Well, thanks again, Chad. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you guys. And, and appreciate being on here. For sure. Chad Erlinson on the Carbide Podcast. One of the cooler parts about EPI, in my mind at least, as I said in the intro, is that despite all of the success and growth over the years, they still maintain the mentality that they are just power sports people like everybody else. If you go to a trade show like Haydays or Sandsport for the off-road guys, don't be surprised if it's Chad or even their president Jeff working the booth. They love the sport and would probably argue that the business is really just an excuse to get out and ride more. Thanks again to Chad for offering up his time. He's got a wealth of knowledge on snowmobiles and side-by-sides and always loves to talk shop if you give him the chance. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I think this series is going to be really cool as it broadens the reach of people and topics we can cover. So be sure to shoot me a message on Instagram or Facebook if there's a brand you want to dive deeper into. I appreciate all the support. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and our new Facebook page. And as always, take care.